What comes to your mind when you think of evil? That's your question to start for today. What comes to your mind when you think of evil? Just take a moment and picture that in your mind. Evil, what is that? Is it a person? Is it perhaps a cause that you've known of or heard of? Is it an event in in history, a series of events in history? Is it something that's happened to you? Or is it even something that you've done to somebody else? When I say the word evil, there's an image, many images perhaps, in all of our minds. It's something that is all too familiar and We get frustrated at ourselves for being so familiar with evil. Today, we are going to come face to face with a very graphic expression of evil. One of the most graphic expressions of evil that the whole Bible has. This passage that we're going to be studying in the book of Mark, where we're continuing to ask the question, who is Jesus? We're asking, what was he doing? And we're asking, what is the kingdom of God like? In this passage, I I recognize perhaps our sermon scheduling might have been off by a month. This passage would make a far better Halloween sermon than it may Thanksgiving sermon. It's one that If you're going to make a movie or if you're going to do a play about the ministry of Jesus, you've got to include this passage. The details are so vivid. The expressions are so horrific the more we think about them. In the ending, the way that Jesus comes face to face with evil and responds in his way, as the passage will tell us, is so beautiful, is so hopeful. It's one of my favorite passages in the entirety of the Bible. It's one of my favorite ones. And so when I saw that this passage was there, I said, I I want that one, please. And so you get it this morning. So if you would please turn to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And we're going to look at some ways that evil looks like. We're going to look at what evil looks like, and we're going to look at what evil does in this passage. And we're going to look at what happens when evil comes face to face with God. That's going to be our our goal and our concentration of our study this morning. Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20. For maybe a little bit of background, when I was um, in college, I took a summer and was a camp counselor at Camp Barrichell. Some of you know of the place. I've mentioned it in the last couple of messages. And this is a passage that I would share every final sort of morning Bible study with my campers and my tribe. And we had a little bit extra time. It was called the action huddle. It's a really cool way to make elementary schoolers think they're going to go do something cool when it's just a longer Bible study. You get them with the bait and switch is what you do. And so we would 
But we had longer time to do it. We could go to some crazy places all over camp. People went off to really interesting places. I always brought us down, if you've ever been to Barakel, to Sheer Lake. It's just this, it's a beautiful looking lake. It's, it's got trees all around it. It's one of those postcard kind of lakes. But I would go down there early in the morning. And if we got it just right, it helped the, the campers then, and perhaps you, kind of set the stage and paint this picture in your mind of what the situation looks like in this passage. Have you ever been on the, lake sh- on a, on the shore of a lake? And it's kind of, maybe it's early in the morning, maybe it's in the fall time, and it's cold, and it's foggy, and you sit there, and so you, you may not be able to see the other side of the lake, and it feels a little bit eerie, you know what I mean? That's the place I imagine this story being. We don't know the weather, obviously, in this passage, but this is how my mind kind of imagines it, is, is imagine, if you would, a lake. And on this lake, there's fog around you. There's these big hills that kind of come up. You're almost in the bottom of a bowl, a natural bowl with water in the bottom. And as you're there, you're standing on the lake shore. It's not necessarily sandy, kind of rocky. The water is rushing up onto the shore. There was a crazy storm the other night, but just all of a sudden ended out of nowhere. Huh. That's odd. Then coming out of the fog, you may see a boat. A boat slowly making its way to shore. 13 people inside of this boat. You look closer, these are mostly young men. Perhaps a few um, older guys, not older, but older than young men. And you see them moving up to the shore and then you hear this piercing screech from something that sounds human but not exactly. This area that you're sitting in is known as the Gerasenes or the Gerardines. It's an area to the east of the Sea of Galilee, a place where There were no Jews in this area. This was a Gentile inhabited land in a greater region called the Decapolis. The Decapolis is Greek words for the ten cities. This is where people lived that did not worship Yahweh, did not worship the one true God, never expected a Messiah, never expected anyone to come and save them. It's not what their religious beliefs had taught them. There's a couple of different cities in this area, more than likely there's some along the Sea of Galilee. There's one close enough where there must have been enough people to have a large herd of pigs grazing the hillside. Several shepherds would have watched it, thousands of pigs covering the hillside. If you lived in this time and in this place, you would have known that further down the shore, there would have been the place of the tombs. And in this place of the tombs, the local townsfolk, the local rumors were, were circling that there was a man that lived in the tombs. And this man who lived in the tombs was not exactly quite right. 
We don't know what they may have called him then, but the scriptures refer to him as one who, who lived in the tombs and had an unclean spirit. Someone who lived in the tombs and had an unclean spirit. The words that may come up in our minds might come from horror movies that we've heard of or maybe even watched at some point of a man who we later find out is possessed by an evil spirit, or as we'll determine, maybe more than one. The status of this man is one that causes our hearts to, to twist with both fear and pity. The description of him is quite vivid. Please read with me. Verse 3 to verse 5. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out. And he was cutting himself with stones. We can get lost in the little bitty details of this passage. But one thing that is noteworthy there is that, this, the, that Mark is, is trying to present us with this image of, of this description of this demoniac, this, this demon-possessed man. As a man who is unclean, a man who is hopeless, a man who is isolated, and a man who is in pain. Living among the tombs for the Jewish, for Jewish peoples, even to this day, would have made someone ritually unclean. Separate from the community, separate from God. That was the living setting that this man found him in. Living in the tombs. Hopeless, controlled by this evil spirit that forced him to take sharp stones and, and, and damage his own body with them. A horrific description. But in the midst of all of these things, unclean, hopeless, by himself, isolated, in pain, though all these things were true, he had incredible strength. It must, there must have been groups of, of, of people from the village that tried to, tried to wrestle him onto the ground, tried to control him, maybe stop him from hurting himself, maybe stop him from hurting other people. Put chains around his arms, chains around his ankles to subdue him for his own good and for the good of others, but to no avail. I don't know how much strength it takes to break chains, but I can't imagine many of us have a horrible setting with horrible strength. And night and day he spent crying, screaming at the top of his lungs, maybe in pain, maybe out of desperation, maybe looking, hoping somebody might come and help him. Do you feel the mix of the fear and the pity and the, the, the desire to help if you could, but many of us in this situation would probably turn the other way and run. And I wouldn't blame you. It's a horrible place. This man is under the control of evil, and this evil seeks to damage this image 
of God. That's one of the points. One of the ways to tell what evil may be is that evil damages the image of God. Evil is completely opposite of God. If God is all good, evil is all bad, all evil. Evil wants nothing more than the destruction of God and the foiling of his plan. Evil wants nothing more than to control and dominate and oppress. But evil also has no way of getting to God, the creator of the universe, who is completely sovereign and in control. Evil can't take a shot at God. No chance. What's the next best thing? Evil goes after something that resembles God. Humanity. And this is a very graphic picture of that, right? But we all know expressions of evil that have done harm to human beings. We all know examples of war and of genocides and of oppression, of slavery. All of these things doing horrible damage to God's image on earth. Even acts of treating each other unkindly, even acts of separating ourselves out and isolating ourselves from other people are ways that God, are going against the ways that God designed us. And thus, if not handled properly, could do damage to the image of God. Evil seeks to damage the image of God. A hopeless condition until that boat that was on the lake, the Sea of Galilee, touches a shore and, and the, the disciples and, and Jesus get out. Spoiler alert, it's the disciples and Jesus, 13 of them. They come out of the boat and I imagine, if you will, put yourself in the shoes of the disciple who, as they're going towards the, the shore, they just had the other night a wild storm that was going to capsize their boat, that was going to kill them. And Jesus controlled the winds and the waves. And they left it with the question of, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? They just had a life threatening situation out on the water. I'm sure they get to the land. Even the fishermen are saying, oh, thank goodness. You ever seen those, those videos of, you know, or, you know, uh, videos or funny movie clips where people get on the, the beach and they hold, they lay on the ground and they kiss the sand. Have you ever seen something like that? Maybe an image on Facebook or something. That's kind of, I, I imagine perhaps some of the, oh, thank goodness we're back. And then they, I imagine they're sitting there and then they hear this screech out of the frying pan into the fire, perhaps. Then I imagine as they all come onto shore, this, the scriptures tell us that this man with the unclean spirit sees them. And it doesn't tell us that he sits there and waits. It doesn't tell us that he runs away in fear. It doesn't tell us that they come to him. It says that he runs towards them. That whole description I just gave of you of this, this, this man in a horrible condition. Imagine that man charging towards you at full speed. I, I would turn around and run away. 
would you? We don't know what they're doing, but I'm kind of, they're like, they're getting their hands up. They may be getting ready. And I imagine Jesus is just standing there, just waiting for them. I don't know his facial expression. I don't know his countenance. It's hard to understand how God may have been interacting with that situation. But this unclean spirit, this man runs towards Jesus and falls face first in front of him. And the passage tells us what he finally says. Verse 7, he says this. And crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The man with the unclean spirit is able to answer the question of the disciples in the previous passage. Did you notice that? In many ways, evil recognizes God perhaps more clearly than we may. Isn't that fascinating? The passage continues and Jesus begins to communicate with the man with the unclean spirit. Verse 8, for he was saying to him, being Jesus, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. I want to pause here for that name, that name Legion. It's, it's ominous, you know what I mean? It gives you that you're like, I don't know, what do you do? That's not an answer, but that's an answer. It doesn't settle you. You don't feel like you have an understanding of this. That word Legion, it's, it's a military term. It was a Roman military term. It would have comprised of a unit of soldiers roughly 6,000 in size, a powerful military unit, one that conquered the known world. For those of you that may remember back to some of our introductory messages on the book of Mark, Mark was more than likely written to a group of, of to persecuted Christians under the Roman Empire. And I think that as they were reading this, they noticed the name of this demon correlating with that government which persecuted, arrested, and killed their brothers and sisters. Do you notice that connection? I wonder how intentional that was. Verse 11 says this, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they, being the spirits, begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. Verse 13 is a powerful verse. It says, so he, being Jesus, gave them permission. He gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. For those of you that pigs is your favorite animal, I'm sorry, but... 
Here we see another example of the destructive power of evil, seeking to destroy and to kill. But there's so much amazing truths in this. I love that, 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 Jesus, that he had, the demons had to ask Jesus for permission. They knew exactly who Jesus was. A question that the entirety of the book of Mark has been asking, that we are asking in this series, who is Jesus? And those that seem to be able to answer that question the quickest are the demons. Evil is very aware of the power of God. Evil is very afraid of the power of God. Sometimes, many times, I think, more afraid than you and I are. How afraid are we at the power of God when we live in this world and we choose to disobey God? We choose to fall short. We choose Wickedness over righteousness and a bad choice over a good choice. How much do we fear God versus how much does evil fear God? It's a necessary question, one that must challenge us. For those that knew the Old Testament that are reading this passage would know that pigs were considered an unclean animal to the Jewish peoples. The Old Testament law forbid the Jewish peoples from eating pigs couldn't have ham or bacon or whatever. And so perhaps the Jewish reader reading this finds a bit of irony in an unclean spirit going into an unclean animal and not keeping the pigs around, not helping them live, but sending them. I imagine that scene from The Lion King with the wildebeest falling down the hill. You know what I'm talking about? The part where Mufasa stops living, you know, spoiler alert. Very, very sad part of my childhood. But I imagine just the innumerable amounts of those wildebeest going down in that scene. That's kind of what I imagine this, these pigs looking like. 2,000 of them. Have you ever seen 2,000 pigs before? I haven't. That's a lot of pigs. The power of evil is substantial. We must never assume we've bested it. We must never assume we've become stronger than evil in our own understanding or our own strength. And yet with all of this power, all of these allusions to the oppressive government that was over these believers, with all of the, the destruction that evil has brought onto this man and onto this herd of, of pigs, amidst all of that, evil submits to God. Evil recognizes the authority that God has over it. Evil recognizes that it's in a war with a force it cannot defeat. And this passage shows us Jesus continuing on in his mission, going into what for the Jewish readers might have been hostile territory of the Gentiles, and going into a godless place and bringing deliverance. Going to a darkened place and bringing light. The next section, 
brings us to another character within the story, or group of characters, the herdsmen. Imagine yourself waking up on a normal morning and going and doing your job of shepherding a herd of 2,000 pigs with your buddies, with your friends. Shepherds weren't old people. They were more than likely teenagers or younger people. And so imagine a bunch of teenagers out keeping an eye on this herd of pigs. And then all of a sudden, the herd of pigs starts running away from them. And, they're, and then you, this is a major, this is 2,000 pigs. This is their food forever. And these teens are going, no, 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 no. And they're, flying, they're, they're just racing. You can't stop them. They just had to get out of the way. It says the herdsmen saw this and were freaked out, rightfully so, I think. And they went back to their village, their town, the place where their parents are from. I mean, if a kid has, hits, a, hits their, their, their parents' car with a bicycle and has to go in and explain, do that walk of shame and to go tell mom and dad that you hit their car or, or that you got in trouble from school. Imagine that these teens having to go to mom and dad and tell them, yeah, we don't have any food anymore. Ah! <laughs> They go back and they tell them everything. Y'all are not going to believe this. We have no food. May have been a boy who cries wolf kind of situation because the townsfolk seem to come out and say, we're going to check this out for ourselves, as if to say you could lose 2,000 pigs. The townspeople come out and something that's so noticeable here is that when they go out to the sea, they see Jesus, they would have seen the disciples, they wouldn't have seen, they may have seen the pigs in the water. But none of that made them afraid. At least what the passage says. Check what the passage says. What does it say that made them afraid? It wasn't any of that. But the thing that made them afraid was the man who was sitting there, dressed in his right mind. They lost all of their money, all of their food. They saw this, these, these random Jewish strangers show up on their lake shore, quite literally. But the thing that freaked them out, the thing that showed them something was different, was this utter removal of evil from this man. The last they'd seen him, they were trying to bind him. They were trying to lock him in chains, and they couldn't. They knew the strength that this man had possessed. And here they come back and see him sitting down, probably relieved, in his right mind is what it says, talking, maybe conversating with the disciples of like, what just happened? That is what made them afraid. And I think with all of this story, I think that this section shows us the greatest tragedy of this story. And it's one that's confused me. But they see this man sitting and in his right mind. And the, the herdsmen, the, the, the teenagers are explaining, see, see, the pigs are in the water. That wasn't us. It was this guy, this Jesus guy. And it says that they beg Jesus to leave their region. 
They're saying, this is too much. Get out of here, dude. We don't want you here. Wow. These people who had been under this evil oppression asked the one who delivered them from that to leave, to go somewhere else. They don't want him there. That's substantial, isn't it? Commentator that I was reading, if you don't know this guy, that's fine. His name is David E. Garland. He wrote a commentary on Mark. It says this, he says, I quote, the townspeople were more comfortable with the malevolent forces that take captive human beings and destroy animals than they were with the one who could expel them. Let me read that one more time for you. David E. Garland in his commentary on Mark says, and I quote, the townspeople were more comfortable with the malevolent forces that take captive human beings and that destroy animals than they are with the one who can expel them. It's an interesting sentence. It's, it's thought-provoking. It makes you stir and say, and I imagine myself in their shoes, and I imagine, why would they send Jesus away? I don't think I would. I would like to think that. But for many of us, how often do we send Jesus away in our own lives? For those of us who are believers, we know we can't send him away. He is always with us, Emmanuel. God is with us, right? But how often do we know Jesus is present? This morning and, and at nine, I think that, that Nick, who was leading it, had mentioned, you know, or I think it was Randy. Somebody said, someone said it. I'll give the credit to somebody. They said that how would our conversations change if Jesus was sitting at our tables with us? How much would your life change if you went to coffee with Jesus? How much would your life change if Jesus was your roommate? If Jesus was living in your house? If Jesus was going with you to school? This is an interesting dilemma, and I think it's a spiritual one, where we, we, those of us who've grown up in the church, those of us who know God, believe in him, have a relationship with Jesus, hold fast to the gospel, celebrate the coming Jesus, we know the freedom that he has offered us. We've read the scriptures, many of us, not all of us, right? But many of us have read that Jesus says he's coming into this world to free you and me from the bondage of sin that we feel every single day, and that he offers that freedom so freely to us. Yet how often do we choose no? I'm going to go back to what I know. I'm going to go back to an old habit. I'm going to go back to what's comfortable. I'm going to go back to what I know best, which is evil. Our next point is that evil is very familiar to us. We all could think of an idea of evil when I asked the opening question. Some of us may have even thought of a personal experience, one way that you fell short and you, you were evil towards somebody else in word or deed or whatever. We are way too familiar with evil, aren't we? We're ashamed to say it, but it's true, isn't it? It's a humbling truth. It's a hard truth. 
And this isn't even a spiritual thing. This is a, a psychological thing. This is a therapy thing. This is what happens for folks that are in different kinds of addictions. Is that they're, they are told of a freedom that they, they could have. But that's hard work. That's a challenge. That's difficult. And so many times we choose what we know best. We choose what's most comfortable for us. This could be any sort of addiction, not just you know, drug or alcohol addiction. This can be food addiction or sexual addiction or video game addiction or whatever it could be, right? Many times we choose what's most comfortable for us than what could be offered. Then what freedom could really be? Evil is all too familiar to us. The passage ends with Jesus being obedient to the wishes of the townspeople. He doesn't fight them. Notice that. Jesus didn't fight them. He didn't say, no, no, I'm going to stick around. He said, okay, if you want me out of here, I'm gone. Getting into his boat, gearing, getting all of his gear there. The man who was saved by him runs up to him and asks to go with him. says, can I, go, can I come with you? You saved me. I want to be with you. Jesus tells him no. He says, no, you cannot come with me. He says, but what I want you to do is I want you to go back to your friends and your family and you tell them all that God has done for you. And it says that he goes back to the Decapolis, which was the 10 cities, mainly Gentile cities. Not, Jew, not a lot of Jews lived there. Not a lot of people who feared God, honored the Torah, all that sort of stuff. He went back there to a godless people. And he shared with them and he told them he was eager to let them know of how God had saved him. And it says that he told them throughout the Decapolis. And it says that everyone marveled at this story of this man who could save him from evil. It's a powerful ending, and I, I many times used it at, at Barakel when students were staying, and they were, they were their final day before they got to go home. And, you know, and those of you that have been campers at Barakel, the, the last day is the hardest day because you're about to go home, and, and, and you, you may get a little, uh, little um, troublemaker, and you may have issues, and all this sort of stuff. The stuff we don't tell the parents after they go home, right? Of the ways that you're, you're stirring, and you're like, I don't want to leave here. This place seems so great. Either it's so fun or God has done these things for me here. And I would tell them that in the same way that this man was told to go, their task has changed. Their task was to take what God had shown them and share that with their friends and family. It's a really powerful connection there, don't you think? But what I think that that does for us today, what I think this passage does for us today, this final point, going through our main points, and that evil damages the image of God, evil submits itself to God, evil is all too familiar to us, and the final one is that evil is on a losing battle. 
Evil is in a losing battle. Jesus, in this passage, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is going into a godless area, an area that was unclean and impure, far from God, and that was representative by this unclean man, and, and delivering them from the power of evil. The kingdom of God took a huge step forward. The other thing that's fascinating here is for those of us that have been reading Mark, we know that many times after Jesus heals somebody, Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. It's, it's weird. Why would Jesus say, don't tell anybody about this? Here's one of the first times that Jesus says, no, go tell somebody. Go let them know. The reasoning is, is, is difficult to understand and there's different theories and ideas and whatever. I wonder if it's the distinction of Jesus sending the gospel to the Gentiles, right? Jesus opening up the gospel past the, the Jews who had been having issues with him, who had been antagonistic to him, and him opening up the gospel to somebody who may hear it and may believe it, like those in the Decapolis who marveled at the works of God. But we don't know exactly why. It's hard to, it's hard to, to get Jesus' strategy guide out and read it and think it makes sense to us. It's hard to do that, isn't it? God's plan's tricky that way, isn't it? But what we do know is that God took a huge step forward. Not that he wasn't ever in control. And evil took a massive step backwards as the gospel was brought to a new peoples. Every time the gospel goes forth further, the kingdom of God takes a huge step further and the forces of evil take a massive step backwards in retreat. When you and I go out into this world, or when you and I show love to each other, when you and I show others what God has done for us, the kingdom of God takes a massive step forward, reclaiming this territory that was lost by our sin and death that started at the fall with Adam and Eve. And it's a massive step forward, but it's also an anticipation of that final step forward, that, that reason that we're celebrating Advent. It isn't just because Jesus has come, though that's amazing and powerful and wonderful, but it's also a recognition that just as Jesus came once and inaugurated the kingdom, that's a fancy word for you, brought the kingdom to earth, one day he's going to take another massive step with his return and destruction of evil, not just in the Gerasenes, not just in the Decapolis, but in the world, in creation. The forces of chaos and sin and death will be destroyed by the power of God. Amen. Take hope. Our main point for today is that evil is on the retreat and God is on please take hope in that truth. It can be a struggle and a difficulty for us to believe that sometimes, can't it? Either in our own lives, in our own sin struggles, we find ourselves, we connect with the peoples who decided to send Jesus away in a horrible way when we say, I keep struggling with this sin. How is God on the advance? Or we look at the world around us. How is God on the advance? It seems easy to see it here, but it seems hard to see it out here. 
I think that's why it's wise to read the Bible in, in books, because we just read the parables where it talked about the ways that the kingdom of God grows, like a seed, like a mustard seed, the before and after, like a seed growing. We, don't know how, we know not how it grows, but we know that it grows. We know that as the word is spread, some will choose not to believe in it, but others will, and that will produce growth. I think that's why it's important to not just read little sections by sections, but read the entirety of these books. It can help us as we struggle with that together. Many times, if a passage raises a question, another passage around it may give an answer. Many times. But I think what I want to end us on here is that we look at this demoniac, we look at this man with the unclean spirit, and we, we feel that sense of pity, but also now we feel that sense of relief that he has been rescued by the powers of God. And we feel settled. This is a great ending to the story. There's a resolution here, right? For those that are in literature classes, right? We fear this condition. We may even consider the condition of this man a worst nightmare. And we sleep soundly knowing that God has saved him. Yet he is a graphic, ugly, horrifying picture of the condition inside of every single man and woman. We may not be demon-possessed ourselves, but we are under the influence from an evil that we cannot break free from on our own. That we cannot escape from no matter how hard we may try. We all have this sinful condition, this evil condition inside of us that we, that we hate inside of us. None of us like the parts of us that do bad things. And we may find ourselves connecting with the, 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 the man screaming into the night, hoping for redemption. If you have not had that redemption, might I suggest to you believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believing in the gospel that can save us from this evil, that can, that can, that can take the, the authority that Satan and the demons have over us and replace that with the authority that God has as he moves into our lives, moves into us and dwells us as believers gives us a source of, of peace and of guidance. The way that we can celebrate Advent is because we know that Jesus has come once and that he has given us salvation in his name. The way to that salvation is a recognition of the evil inside of us, the recognition of that evil separating us from God, and the recognition that we must surrender ourselves to God, repent of our sins, turn away from our sins, confess our sins to God, and believe that his finished work on the cross pays for those sins. He bore the penalty that we deserved. He came to this earth. God and man, Emmanuel, lived a perfect life and died a perfect death for us imperfect sinners. And rose from the dead three days later. That is our hope. The hope that we can have in this salvation of this man and the hope that we can have in this season of Advent is the hope that only belongs to those of us who confess the name of Jesus as Lord and believe that he rose from the dead victorious over sin. 
My desire is that you would choose Jesus if you have not, that you would surrender yourself to Jesus if you have not. And if you have, may this be a check-in for your life. Where are you like the ones who decided to send Jesus away? Where are you like the ones who saw salvation, saw deliverance, saw freedom, and chose the evil that you may be too familiar with? Where is that in your life? My prayer is that you would choose to bring Jesus further into your life, to continue to fall in love with him, continue to believe in that freedom that he offers you, and live the life of a believer in faith, in hope, and the one who will come and remove all evil from us, from the world, and from all of creation for his honor and glory. Evil is on the retreat. God is on the advance. Cling to him.